Have you ever wondered why there aren't very many group therapies for non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short? There's actually a reason for this. Research has shown they can often increase occurrences of self-injury rather than decrease occurrences. But what if there existed a carefully crafted group therapy to address self-injury that has empirical research supporting its usefulness in not only reducing self-injury, but also addressing other self-harming behaviors? There are very few treatments that target NSSI specifically. We talked about the Treatment for Self-Injurious Behaviors, or TSIB, in Episode 10, Dialectical Behavior Therapy, or DBT, in Episode 19, and even Digital Interventions for Self-Harm in Episodes 23 and 29. In today's episode, we talk about one of my favorite therapies for self-injury that is only 14 sessions long, known as Emotion Regulation Group Therapy, or ERGT for short. It draws from both DBT and Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Just what does ERGT entail and what about it helps people not only stop self-injury but also reduce the need to self-injury to begin with? To walk us through each session of ERGT in detail, I am joined today from the University of Toledo in Ohio by its lead developer, Dr. Kim Gratz and Dr. Matthew Tull. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. I met Drs. Gratz and Tall in Chicago at the 9th Annual IISS Conference in June 2014. I had read their work on ERGT and had even just presented on portions of it at the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine Conference held just a few months prior that year in Austin, Texas. When I saw they were conducting an all-day IISS pre-conference training on ERGT, I made plans to head to Chicago a day early to attend. As fortune would have it, I shared a shuttle with them back to the hotel after their training. We talked about a lot of things, including the need for brief interventions for self-injury, like ERGT, and even strategies to shorten DBT by targeting skills in which each participant is deficient, rather than enrolling everyone in the full DBT program that focuses on all the skills, which can be many months. Nerd talk, I guess. In short, ERGT was on my list of topics for this podcast before we even launched it. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Dr. Kim Gratz is professor and chair of the Department of Psychology at the University of Toledo. She has received multiple awards throughout her career, including most recently the President's Award for Excellence in Creative and Scholarly Activity from the University of Toledo this past year in 2022. Dr. Gratz's research focuses on the role of emotion dysregulation in borderline personality disorder, self-injury, and other risky behaviors, including suicidal behaviors and substance misuse. Dr. Matthew Tull is also a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Toledo and has received multiple awards as well. Dr. Tull's research is focused on understanding the role of emotion regulation in the development and maintenance of post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as a variety of maladaptive behaviors commonly observed among individuals with PTSD, such as substance use, risk-taking behaviors, suicidal behavior, and non-suicidal self-injury. Thank you, Drs. Gratz and Tull, for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having us. We're really looking forward to this. Yes, thank you. 
Well, I'm really excited as I had thought about starting this podcast two and a half years ago, well, actually probably closer to three years ago now, and different topics that I would want to have on this podcast. And I know talking to you, Dr. Toll, in a separate exchange, I expressed interest, but I had been thinking about this from the outset, wanting to do an episode specifically on emotion regulation group therapy. So I'm really excited that we both we have you both to share about it. There's usually a story, not necessarily, about how people got interested in self-injury. And I love asking people at the beginning of each episode. So I want to ask each of you, like, how did you become interested in researching and treating self-injury? For me, it was actually sparked by my first clinical experiences. In between undergrad and graduate school, I took two years off to work as a counselor in an inpatient trauma program. And so this was a program where all of the patients, they had pretty lengthy stays, really extensive trauma histories for you know decades even, lots of diagnoses of post-traumatic stress disorder, borderline personality disorder. And at the time I was in college <laughs> studying psychology, we did not learn about self-injury in uh, psychology classes. Like it was something that had never come up. I had never heard about it. I had never been exposed to it. And so my first exposure was doing an overnight shift in this program and a patient started trying to harm herself. So after we took away the implement, I had said to her like, hey, what's going on? Why are you trying to hurt yourself? And her response just really resonated with me because she said, I am feeling so much pain on the inside. I am completely overwhelmed. I don't know how to cope, but if I put it out there and I get it on my arm and I can see it, then I feel like I can manage it more easily. And I thought to myself, you know, like that makes a lot of sense. And it clearly seemed reasonable then that she would be engaging in this behavior. It was also in stark contrast to the responses that occasionally floated around amongst the staff, which is the behavior was attention seeking or other types of judgments. And so that was the experience that made me say, you know, this is what I'm going to study in graduate school. I'm going to look at this behavior. And in particular, I'm going to look at its function and how, even though it might not work so well in the long term, it does something for people in the short term. And we need to understand that in order to treat folks who are engaging in it. Right. And so in terms of my exposure to NSSI, it's primarily, at least initially, through Kim's work. Kim and I were in the same lab in graduate school. And hearing Kim talk about non-suicidal self-injury in lab meetings was really my first introduction into that behavior, as well as how emotion regulation might be a primary function of that behavior. Much of my research is primarily focused on post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and substance use disorders, and looking at the role of emotional regulation in that relationship. Just in doing that work and collecting data from participants, doing clinical work with that population, as you probably expect, you also see a wide variety of other self-destructive behaviors, including NSSI, which does occur at a higher rate among individuals with PTSD and individuals with PTSD and substance use disorder. So in doing research with that population, uh, it's kind of opened my eyes to just a wide variety of other self-destructive behaviors that we can see within our within that population, uh, as well as you know the benefits of trying to identify these factors such as emotional regulation that might underlie 
a wide variety of different behaviors that we need to address in treatment. And then you had developed and do trainings on emotion regulation group therapy, or ERGT for short. I am really excited about this intervention and asking you each about the nuts and bolts of it. But before we get into that, I'm curious to know, I mean, I I have some guesses, but how did you come to decide to develop ERGT? So for me, it was that, you know, like I mentioned, I decided I was going to study self-injury and the function of this behavior in graduate school. So my very first study was my master's thesis, decided to look at the functions of this behavior. And in the exact same way that I had seen clinically, the vast majority of participants were reporting that the behavior helped them regulate their emotions in some way. And that could take a number of different forms. For some people, it was externalizing emotional pain to the outside so they could see it. It becomes more manageable. Some talked about just feeling so overwhelmed and the relief that self-harm provided. Some talked about just using it as a way to distract from really distressing thoughts or emotions they were having that they didn't want to experience. But the theme was emotion regulation. And so for my dissertation, I started looking at emotion regulation difficulties as a driving factor or an underlying mechanism. And so I was doing research on that, and we were finding that emotion regulation really was strongly related to self-injury. It seemed to be a big mechanism. And around the same time, I started internship at McLean Hospital in Boston and joined a DBT program there. The program was so incredibly wonderful. Um, We were providing amazing services to clients. They were getting help. DBT is a really efficacious treatment for self-injury. And yet one thing I noticed is that there was a really long wait list. There were all these patients who wanted the treatment, wanted help for self-injury, and couldn't get in sometimes for as long as a year. And these folks were left not really having an effective treatment to help them with their self-injury. So they were working with clinicians, but these clinicians weren't necessarily trained in empirically supported treatments for self-harm. And they were, you know, trying to make progress on the self-injury, but it wasn't always smooth. And I started thinking about, well, given what we know about what leads to self-harm, given how important emotion regulation is, what if we develop a treatment that teaches folks who struggle with self-injury kind of more helpful ways of responding to their emotions, approaching their emotions, so that they're more emotionally regulated, and therefore the need for self-injury should decrease. And so that's kind of what we were thinking about, that if we could actually help folks kind of have a different relationship to their emotions and have emotions be more regulated, there wouldn't be as much need for self-injury and it should be far easier to treat. And we tried to specifically design the treatment to be brief so that folks could get it while they were on the wait list for DBT, they could get some stabilization of their self-injury, and then eventually they could still go into a DBT program, get treatment for a broader constellation of behaviors that go along with borderline personality, but they would have some stabilization of their self-harm in the meantime. 
Huge need. And we did an episode on DBT a little over a year ago. And we also did an episode on treatment of self-injurious behaviors with Dr. Peggy Andover earlier on, which those two are part of our top five most downloaded episodes. And what's different though here is you're talking about more of a brief treatment, which differs a little bit from DBT, but also from TSIB, the treatment for self-injurious behavior focuses more on differential reinforcement of alternative behaviors or learning new strategies. But your treatment, the focus is really on emotion regulation which is different and that theoretically is what will change and help someone stop self-injuring. Exactly. And actually, we do have evidence from the studies we've conducted that it's the changes in emotion regulation over the course of treatment that lead to the changes in self-injury, that that really is the mechanism driving those improvements. Well, we will get into those the scientific results about how like the empirical support. I know a lot of our listeners are really interested in hearing kind of the detailed origins or the, actually the session by session, what that might look like if they were to participate in ERGT. And I remember, the two of you probably don't, but back in 2014, IS in Chicago, you did a pre-conference workshop on this. And I had read some of your papers prior to that, but sitting and hearing the two of you present on this, it just made so much sense to me. And I got so excited, especially this brief intervention that targets emotion regulation that hopefully will be more accessible to people that won't have to be on this long wait list. So if we might shift gears and focus on if you can walk us through ERGT in what each session entails, for instance, how many sessions, what each session targets, and what might that look like in a session of ERGT? Absolutely. So yeah, so it's a 14-week long treatment. And then we often would have a couple of follow-up sessions at the end, but the kind of most of the material is in that first 14 weeks. I think it's important to note at the outset, and I think I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but the reason that we think this treatment is helpful and what kind of goes throughout the treatment is an acceptance-based understanding of emotion regulation. So there's all kinds of ways you can think about emotion regulation. It could be about like trying to get rid of negative feelings or trying to control emotions that you feel are disruptive to you. We take a really different approach in ERGT. And basically we acknowledge that emotions are functional as human beings, all of us have them. Even if we don't want to, we're stuck with them. So pragmatically, it just makes a lot of sense to kind of accept that they're gonna be present. And they provide a ton of information. So we don't think that the goal with regulating emotions is to not have them or try to get rid of them. We think that the goal with emotion regulation is to experience one's emotions, learn from them, know what information they're telling you, and still have ways that you cannot have to act on them. Like, so strategies to keep yourself from necessarily kind of doing everything they're suggesting that you do. Um, so the ability to kind of take a step back can be helpful. But ultimately we do think there's value in emotions and that what causes so many problems for folks is the fight against them. So it's not having emotions that causes suffering. It's having emotions, not wanting them to be present, and then doing everything you can to get out of that because it's not going to work and it's going to increase distress. And so that's kind of like the theme across all of our sessions. 
And you'll see that as we kind of get more into the nuts and bolts of the treatment. But I will say the first session is actually a little less about emotion regulation. So with the first session, what we want folks to do is to really identify what this behavior is doing for them and also the ways in which it doesn't work. And so we do kind of a very basic exercise around, you know, what are the consequences of this behavior in the short term and the long term, both positive and negative? Because we think if it's doing something for you and we think no one would do this if it didn't, if it wasn't working in some way, folks would not do it. So we want them to get in touch with what it's doing and to acknowledge that because pretending it doesn't have short term benefits doesn't help anyone. And so we, you know, get them to kind of think about the ways in which it's working, what it does for them in the moment, and then take a step back and think about how maybe in the long term, those same benefits are not there. And maybe actually some of the time it backfires in the long term. So again, oftentimes what comes up in group is that this behavior provides relief in the moment. But then if you go beyond the moment, next day, next week, people are actually identifying that it makes them feel more upset. It actually increases distress. It increases shame. And so all this emotion that they weren't really able to tolerate in the moment is actually worsened by the self-harm eventually. And so being able to kind of put that out there for folks to notice and say, maybe there are better ways of responding to emotional distress in the moment that can provide you with relief, but relief that's actually enduring. Things that you can do that won't make it worse in the long run. And that's what this treatment is all about. So it's a way of kind of buying in. Matt. And I'd also say it's just a, a very powerful exercise in that first session, you know, within a group format to have clients share why they've been engaging in self-injury, the consequences of it, both positive and negative, because early on in that group starts to reduce some of the shame and stigma kind of around that behavior. So you start to see clients recognizing that, oh, so other people do it for this reason as well. Oh, I see why this behavior continues, even though I know it's not working so well for me in the long term. And so even right there, you start to see kind of a shift in how they relate kind of to their own experience and that behavior very early on in the group. And so it's a very powerful exercise to have early on with that. And I know in some treatments we talk about, or historically, group therapies in general are contraindicated or not recommended for people who self-injure. Can you touch a little bit about, as you introduce this in a group context, before we talk about week two of the treatment and how this might differ from those other treatments that we recommend against? Yeah, I mean, I think we are very open with folks that we that this is a shared experience. So people know that they are not alone. And we do think that's one reason why it's really powerful to have a group. Because like Matt just said, there's so much stigma associated with self-injury. And there's a lot of shame that goes along. So being able to look around and say, oh, I'm not the only one who's struggling with this. Oh, they have similar experiences to me, can be really powerful. And yet we also talk about wanting a safe environment. So it's perfectly reasonable and not in any way anti-therapeutic to talk about like, yes, you know, this is what this behavior does for me in the short term, in the long term, et cetera. 
that's very different than diving into kind of details of the behavior or war stories about the behavior. And so we let people know, like, we don't want to trigger anyone. We don't want to cause anyone to have urges. So we're not going to get into detail about the behavior, but to acknowledge the fact that, yes, there's self-harm and this is what it does should be a way of allowing us to talk about it, but keep the safety of the group intact. I do think it also helps, too, that it is a skills-focused group, right? The purpose of the group is to increase emotional regulation skills. And so it really is only in that first group where you really explicitly talk about self-injury and kind of dive into the function of that behavior. And once we've established that emotion regulation is kind of a primary driving force behind that behavior, the rest of the group is largely focused on emotion regulation. And so a big part of you know, the discussion within the group, the exercises are around how people are you know, responding to their emotions. And obviously it might be related to urges for self-injury or actual behaviors of self-injury, but mostly it's about how people are responding to their emotional experience and really kind of fostering that emotional willingness that they can talk about earlier. Thank you for clarifying, because I wanted to bring that to attention as listeners might be wondering, well, what about the support groups for self-injury? And and this is not a support group. It's an evidence-based intervention with a very specific agenda in a way, mm-hmm. as far as what we're about to describe. So it's very structured. And I like, Dr. Toll, how you mentioned that it's really in this first session that you really talk about self-injury. So what what is next? The very next session then is where we try to lay the framework for the rest of the group in terms of emotional acceptance. Like I kind of alluded to earlier, most folks who come into the group don't have a lot of emotional acceptance. So their experience of their emotions is that they are distressing, they are overwhelming, they can feel like an assault on your system. Like these are not things that make people want to embrace their emotions or accept their emotions. And so we think it's really important to talk with folks about why we have emotions, what emotions do for us, the function of emotions, and kind of provide really basic psychoeducation on why emotions are beneficial to us as human beings and the fact that all human beings have them regardless of what our life experiences are, regardless of whether or not we want them, we all have them. And so the idea is to kind of provide this information, this education to help people realize that there is something to be said for experiencing emotions. And then we also help them in this first session identify maybe the ways in which they're not accepting of their emotions. And so this is something that you see overlap in DBT, but we have patients identify their negative beliefs or judgments about emotions. So all the things they don't like about emotions, all the things that they kind of negatively evaluate about their emotions, that they're bad, that if you feel anger, you're an evil person, that sadness is a sign of weakness, all of these types of things. And then we try to look at those in the context of the information we provided them about emotions, like the facts about emotions, and then teach them skills for taking a step back from those negative beliefs when they pop up, because we acknowledge very strongly, if you've had these negative beliefs for decades, they're not going away anytime soon. Like they're not just going to disappear. And I might really hope that they could, but they're not going to. 
And so what we want is for folks to be more aware of them. And when they pop up to start to be able to take a step back from them and to be able to maybe not attach to them as much or buy into them. So eventually it can be, oh, there we go again. Yep, that's my mind telling me that emotions aren't okay. I know that that's not necessarily the case though, so I don't have to act like that's true. And so that's kind of the stance we're trying to help them take. And again, encouraging them to approach their emotions in this very different way that we think ultimately will decrease suffering. Yeah, and so after that, once we've established that emotions serve a purpose, that they're there to provide us with information and can be helpful, the next step in uh, session three and four is to help clients increase their awareness of emotions. Obviously, there's research that in order to effectively modulate our emotions, we need to first understand what we're experiencing. And so with those two sessions, we have clients basically dissect different emotions that they experience. Uh, so we go through just kind of your standard basic emotions, fear, anger, sadness, but also ask clients to identify emotions that they think are particularly relevant to their lives as well. And so what we do is start having them identify what are the physical sensations associated, what kind of thoughts are associated uh, with that emotion, action urges, what do they feel like they want to do when that emotion is there, as well as what types of situations might bring up those emotions. And the goal of this almost is to create a roadmap for kind of a variety of different emotions that they're experiencing to really kind of help foster that emotional awareness. Because our conceptualization is that awareness is not all or nothing. It actually lies on a continuum so that there could be times in which maybe you're only aware of kind of the physical sensations. But if you're able to recognize, okay, this is a physical sensation I have, it's a, usually associated with this type of emotion, it's occurring in this context, which in this context, I have typically experienced this emotion, that they can start to maybe put the pieces together to begin to identify kind of what emotion might be there, which can then guide more effective behavior. And so we consider this to be kind of a foundational skill, uh, which is why we spend two sessions on this, because we want clients to begin this group with a good understanding as to kind of what their emotions are and to begin to increase kind of awareness that they are in a better position to basically benefit from the other skills that we'll be discussing later on in the group. Well, and the other thing that those two sessions do is start to help clients identify what information those emotions are serving. So like Matt said, there's a lot that's about this roadmap and how can I use all of this information that I can reflect on because I'm not currently in the emotional state. And so I have like this, you know, roadmap or a recipe book for like how to name certain emotions. But also once I've put a label on the emotion, start to reflect on what is it telling me? Why is it here? What information is it giving me? And then also, how can I act on that information in a way that's helpful to me? So if I'm really sad because I've experienced a loss, what can I do to kind of increase my contact with something else that will provide meaning or to reach out to somebody to get support? Like the sadness is prompting these actions that are super helpful, super functional, if we can be aware of them and then use it to guide our behavior. And so that's another thing those two sessions do is help people start to think, how do I use my emotions to help me and to help guide what I'm doing in my life? And sometimes too, that exercise also 
you know, as Kim mentioned, can decrease the extent to which emotions feel frightening, feel unpredictable, feel out of control. Because if you can begin to understand how these different aspects of emotion are connected, how it might be connected to that situation, the information you might be able to provide, it adds a little bit of clarity to that experience that can make emotions seem less like maybe an assault or something that is something that essentially needs to be avoided in some way. And I know we've talked about this being 14 weeks. Each session, is this 60 minutes, 90 minutes? How long are they typically? So it's 90 minutes, supposedly. Uh, sometimes, occasionally, we ran over. But yes, mostly around an hour and a half each. <laughs> so the first session, just talking about the functions of the behavior and how it, recognizing that, hey, I'm not alone. Other people experience this. And it serves the same function for them as well. The second session, you talk about the function of emotions, and then here we are in the weeks three and four talking about emotional awareness. Yeah, and then after emotional awareness comes emotional clarity. The idea behind this is, again, we're trying to get folks to understand what they're feeling, partly because it makes emotions less overwhelming if I can put a label on it, but partly because I can't use my emotions and the information they're providing if I don't know what the emotion is. But in weeks five and six, we start to get into, I think, an aspect of the treatment that patients often really like and relate to, which is emotions aren't that simple, though. And sometimes they're complicated, and sometimes the complications are really overwhelming. And I think this is where they start to feel like, yes, this is the experience I've had. Because when we're talking about, like, you know, our basic emotions and how they're helpful, sometimes I think that can be hard to relate to. But when we talk about the things that make emotions more overwhelming or sometimes less directly helpful, that's the part where clients, I think, start to feel like, okay, you're getting my experience. And so we talk about two different ways that emotions can be complicated or factors that can kind of get in the way of understanding what that initial emotion response was that was helpful. And so in one of these weeks, we talk about the difference between a primary emotion and a secondary emotion. And so again, up until this point, it's been all about the fact that emotions are there for a reason and they provide information and they're super helpful. And then in week five, we say, except secondary emotions are not. And in fact, for a lot of you, that's probably the type of emotion you've been most in contact with. And so we basically describe to them that primary emotions are what we've been talking about in the earlier weeks of the group. Those are the ones that are elicited by something that has occurred. So something in the environment or something inside yourself. They're really helpful. They provide information that you can use to guide your behavior. And they are emotions that we really do need to experience. Secondary emotions, though, are the emotions that we have in response to our primary emotions. And they generally come up when we judge our primary emotions or we beat ourselves up for having those or when those negative beliefs about emotions they identified in week two, when those kick in. And when that happens, people can then feel all kinds of things about the primary the emotion they experienced and unlike primary emotions, which generally really don't last that long and can kind of come and then go, 
Secondary emotions are ones that can stick around for extremely long periods of time and can be extremely painful and honestly aren't very helpful. Because the only thing they're telling us is that I'm really good at beating myself up for feeling my emotions, which isn't super helpful. And so that's where we'll talk with them about like all the stuff we've been saying that doesn't apply to secondary was secondary. We actually do want you to decrease those as much as possible. We want you to, you know, make them less frequent, make them less intense. We don't need you hanging out in this emotional state. And the best way of doing that is, again, to be aware of how you beat yourself up when you have emotions, take a step back from those judgments and those negative beliefs, and recontact yourself with that primary emotion rather than getting sucked up into the secondary emotional cycle. And so, again, I think that's a pretty validating experience for patients to see like, oh, <laughs> Okay, so they do get it. Not all of these emotions have been so, you know, incredibly positive. And yet really acknowledging that if we can catch this cycle, we can take a step back from it, refocus our attention on the primary emotion and kind of stop those secondary emotions from becoming so debilitating um, and overwhelming. So how this might play out is if someone feels sad and has the judgment, like you had referenced earlier that sadness means I'm weak. And so now, well, now I feel weak, then I'm sad. And then that elicits a secondary emotion, perhaps anger. Anger or shame. Or shame. Yeah. And there's not much use for that anger or shame. There's not much utility for that. Right. Exactly. And so clients start to respond to the shame or anger while not attending to that primary emotion, which is where that useful information is and something that might guide that more adaptive or effective behavior. And so, uh, like Kim mentioned, a lot of the times our clients are just caught up in that secondary emotion while that initial emotion is not being attended to. Exactly. How often do you think when someone reports engaging in self-injury in response to an emotion how often do you think it's a secondary emotion as opposed to a primary emotion? It's a really good question. I mean, my inclination is to think that more often than not, it's the secondary that's prompting it. So it doesn't mean it is always or yeah. that it has to be because some primary emotions are incredibly painful. Like if I experience a loss and I have deep primary sadness, that's really painful. And it may be that I want to avoid that pain and I engage in self-injury. And yet, in our experience with these groups and with doing other treatments for self-injury, it seems like when people enter our treatment, they are so much in secondary emotions so much of the time that I think it's pretty much the predominant experience that they're having. And I think that primary emotions are flipped into secondary emotions so quickly they don't even realize it. So like they actually might feel like the anger or the shame in response to sadness is the primary emotion because it happens literally one second after the sadness occurs. It's become that much of kind of a learned response to that primary emotion. So I think if clients are really in that secondary emotional state so much of the time, that would mean likely it is the thing driving the self-injury, even though primary emotions certainly could drive it. I just think they're often not in that primary emotional state. 
Would you be willing to give one more example of how this might play out with self-injury and when a primary emotion might lead to a secondary? So I use the example of feeling sad and the judgment that, well, sadness is a weakness. Is there another example that you might be able to offer? Yeah. So another one that we see oftentimes is, and especially because in our groups, we have predominantly, well, in the groups that we ran in the United States for our clinical trials, it was all women. And I bring this up because I think there are gender differences and what we learn about emotions that are and are not acceptable. In our group, all these women, there was generally a sense that anger was not okay that, you know, it was not acceptable to have anger. And so when anger was experienced, the judgments that would pop up is that they were bad for experiencing anger, or they were evil, or there was something wrong with them, you shouldn't ever feel this way. And then all of those judgments tended to lead to shame. Other folks who struggled with anger would have judgments about and you'll see kind of what the secondary emotion will be from this. They would have judgments about, you know, I'm going to get out of control now. You know, this is something that only leads to negative consequences. This causes me to do terrible things. And so that would lead to a sense of fear or panic that like anger was this uncontrollable emotion. So we saw a lot of secondary responses to anger as well. And because, because that primary emotion is not being attended to, you have this process where these judgments continue, that secondary emotion really grows in intensity and clients are then in a position of, I need to figure out some way to get away from this. Because how do you respond effectively to shame, right? It's saying that there's something wrong with you as a person. And so that can then motivate behaviors that are focused on self-punishment or even just, I need some relief from this emotional pain that I'm experiencing. And actually it's probably more emotional suffering. And so self-injury might be a way to essentially kind of stop that emotion, get some temporary relief from that experience. I wanted to ask that because I know when I was attending your training at IWS in 2014, that that was one of those more complicated, yeah. I guess, concepts that I recall of ERGT. Yeah, it's always, I think it's one that is often novel for folks when they hear about it and definitely not always the easiest to grasp and yet so validating in terms of this is the experience of emotions and these are not ones we're saying you should like hang around in. These are ones that we can try to reduce as much as possible, um, which I think is helpful. So in the next session, we do another kind of focus on things that can get in the way of understanding or being in touch with that kind of initial emotional response that we believe to be most useful. And it's slightly different than the primary secondary emotion distinction. So in this case, we're distinguishing between clear emotions, clear emotions being this thing occurs, there's some kind of event that elicits an emotion, and the emotion is directly in response to that. Something happens and I experience my emotion and it's just about what happened. And again, therefore, it's providing me with very helpful information. Humans, though, don't always have those types of emotions. Oftentimes, we have factors going on in our lives or within ourselves that make emotions cloudy. So rather than just responding to this thing that just occurred, we might have exhaustion because we haven't been sleeping well, or we might not have eaten 
know, we might have skipped a meal and so now we're really hungry. Or we might have had some other really significant stressors earlier in the day. All of those things can influence how we respond emotionally in the moment and can change that emotional response oftentimes by amplifying it. So rather than just having this emotion to this thing and it kind of matches up to it in a very proportional way, my emotions are being clouded by the fact that I'm hungry and tired and had a fight and I'm stressed out and I'm worried about all these other things. And all of that can then get in the way and start to kind of cloud that emotional response. And so we talk about that and also say, like, we can't get rid of cloudy emotions. Like, it is part of being human. It is something we all experience. So it's not about not having them. It is, however, about recognizing when we're having them. So we don't just think, oh, this emotion is telling me that my anger's at like, you know, a 10 out of 10, and I really need to act on this immediately. Maybe the clear part is like irritation at a three and that other stuff is clouding it. So it kind of helps you take a step back and figure out how to use that information, how to use that emotion. Then also, if I know what kinds of things can cloud emotions, I can actually be aware ahead of time that I'm going to be more emotionally vulnerable. And so in and of itself, that can be helpful. Like I can know today that I have not slept in a couple of nights. I'm really, really tired and I'm super stressed out. So I'm going to be more likely to experience really intense emotions in ways that I wouldn't if all of those things weren't happening. And so when I do experience a really intense emotion, I can think to myself, okay, yeah, I kind of thought that was going to occur. It doesn't mean that it's this upsetting. It just means that I'm vulnerable and that's all right. And so it can kind of give folks a way of understanding the emotions they're having and then sorting through to figure out the helpful information from the information that isn't about what just occurred. That is great. Yeah, I often call those vulnerability factors. So inadequate sleep, and I know sleep is so important. That was a great example. There are many other ones too, like you're referencing, but that's a good one. Yeah. (laughs) So that's pretty much almost the first half, sessions one through six. Yeah. And then sessions seven and eight, I think, also go together. Yes. Right. So seven and eight are consistent with what, for people who are familiar with acceptance and commitment therapy, major emphasis on helping clients identify the consequences of emotional unwillingness, that there is a cost to avoiding your emotions. And obviously we've been talking about emotional avoidance to some extent kind of throughout the group. However, this session is explicitly focused on helping clients understand why emotional avoidance is so common, how it's so easy to fall into that trap of trying to get away from the emotions or why we get this message that our emotions are something that we can effectively control. And so we have some exercises in this initial group, more experiential metaphors are used to help clients kind of understand how emotional control doesn't work and the consequences of that, whether it's increasing kind of the intensity of emotions, the frequency of the emotions, or reducing our tolerance for emotions. And so after this group, we ask clients to simply just kind of monitor those times in which they experience emotions and have been unwilling and kind of connect with what is the cost of trying to escape or control the emotional experience. In the next session, session eight, we then talk about emotional willingness. 
But the counter to emotional unwillingness is allowing yourself to have your emotions as they occur. And making a space for that experience is part of trying to build a life that matters to you. And so there we talk about the beneficial consequences of emotional willingness. We talk about emotional willingness as a behavior that it's a choice that you can make. So even in those moments in which you feel completely unwilling, you can still choose willingness. That that is something that is under your control. And we also talk a lot with this about some, like Matt said, it's a behavior, but it's also an active choice. Because oftentimes when folks hear this idea of willingness, it can feel a lot like resignation. So I'm just going to what? going to allow myself to feel awful all the time and just sit with it. And that's what you're telling me to do. And it's like actually choosing to experience your emotions, choosing to be in contact with them when they're there is one of the bravest choices you can make. Like it is the opposite of resignation because you are saying, this is how I am going to respond to this emotion. And it's kind of the opposite of what your gut instincts might be telling you to do if you're somebody who's chronically avoided your emotions. And so it really is this active decision being done because even though in the moment it is going to increase your contact with something that's painful, we believe very strongly the suffering is going to go down in the long term because you'll have that emotion, it will then pass, and you'll be able to move on to other emotions as opposed to fighting your emotion, trying to avoid it when it comes back more intense, more frequent, and far more painful. And like Matt said, you know, there's a lot of experiential exercises in these two sessions where we have folks kind of listen to metaphors, think about their own experiences. And then the homework is like, go out and try it out. You don't have to buy into what we're saying. Go and see like what happens when you fight your emotions and how do you feel a few hours later? And what happens when you don't fight them and allow them to be there? Because the thing is, they are. <laughs> Like, you kind of got to allow them because they're going to be there anyhow. So like, let's take that stance. And usually when people come back the next week, they say, yeah, I was shocked. I didn't believe you at all. And I think it worked. Like, I really did end up feeling less terrible when I practiced willingness than when I tried to fight, which didn't end up working so well anyhow. I love that as an experiment, just give it a try, you know, see if it works for yeah. you, because many of us have spent so much of our lives running away from those very emotions without realizing, well, maybe they're not as horrible or as scary as we might think, which reminds me, is this where you start talking about the paradoxical effect of avoiding emotions? Yeah. I'd love to hear you explain a little bit about that for our listeners. Yeah, so I think it really overlaps with what Matt was mentioning earlier about kind of how emotional control does not work. And so this idea being that when I try to push away or avoid my emotions, just trying to do that or just the act of doing that actually puts me more in touch with those emotions. Because how can I know I'm avoiding something or getting away from it unless I'm focused on that very thing? And so just by trying to ensure that I don't feel it, the only way to know that is to keep monitoring. Am I feeling it? Because if I'm feeling it, I have to make sure I'm not. And so now all of my attention is being directed to this one emotion. And even if it's not there, I'm still worried it's going to be there. So I might even start to kind of increase the chance it's going to be there by focusing so much attention on it. 
Whereas if I take the stance of like, okay, I'm going to experience this emotion, then the emotion comes and then it passes and then I can move on. And so it's often just so hard to wrap your head around. And yet it is so interesting that the very act of trying to get rid of an emotion puts us more in touch with it and increases the likelihood that it is going to be there. So completely paradoxical and yet so very human because this is something that most people struggle with a lot. And so we we rely on uh, Wagner's famous white bear study where you know he asked participants to you, know, you could clear your mind and think about anything that you want, but don't think of a white bear. And of course, as soon as you say that, as soon as you set that rule, the first thing that comes to mind is a white bear. So we, we use that kind of as an example. But the other thing too, is that we, we draw attention to the fact that trying to control your emotions, which truly is part of who you are, it's a biological process, it is challenging to do. And it takes a lot of effort. And even the act of trying to suppress or push down an emotion can increase your physiological arousal, which can then also make your emotions sometimes feel more intense as well. As Kim mentioned, when we have an emotion that we don't want to experience, the very act of trying to guard against that emotion is one going to put us more into contact with that emotion. And then also when we're in contact with that emotion, we might try to use a lot of our effort to keep it away, to push it down, which one is going to focus a lot of our time and energy on that experience even more, but also it can increase our physiological arousal, which is going to potentially increase the intensity of that emotional experience. And so it becomes this vicious cycle to where that emotion that maybe wasn't so strong to begin with that we're trying to get away from is now growing in intensity to the point where we may feel as though the only option that we have is to use a behavior that is going to get us some temporary relief to that emotion, even though it might not work so well for us in the long term, such as self-injury. And you had mentioned you use a lot of metaphors here. Would you be willing to share one or two metaphors that are some favorites? So one we have is, it's very popular in the, the act world, is the tug of war with the monster. Imagine that your emotions are a monster and it's on one side of a canyon, you're on the other side of a canyon, and you're stuck in this tug of war battle with that monster, your emotions. What you're trying to do is get your emotions into that canyon. Because you know if you can win this battle, then you don't ever have to deal with your emotions again, and you can start to live your life. The problem is that emotion monster is incredibly strong. And truly, there's no way to win that battle, right? And yet we put a lot of effort into it. And so we pull, you know, we tug on that rope, but what happens is that monster pulls even harder back. And so what we find is that we're inching closer and closer and closer to that canyon. So we might change our grip. We might try to put all of our energy and effort into getting this monster into that canyon. And yet it's just not going to work. What is the solution? The solution is not to figure out some way to win this battle, but simply just drop the rope. And this is not resignation. This is not giving up. It's an active choice to not engage in a battle that we cannot win. And one, the more that we go out and live our lives and don't pick up that rope, sure, that emotion monster is still there. There's going to be times maybe when it's taunting us to pick up the rope, you know, when we feel that urge to get into that battle, because maybe this will be the time I can get that monster into the canyon. 
But as soon as we pick up that rope, what happens is we come more into contact with that emotion. If we simply just drop the rope, sure, that emotion is there, yet we can focus our energy on exploring our side of the canyon, doing the things that matter to us. I love that metaphor. So I would argue, if you're using the metaphor, though, you have to just stop talking after drop the rope. It has to be a wonderful, meaningful thing. You don't just keep talking after that. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> I love that metaphor. Matt and I do it very differently in group. We have very different styles with how we do it. But yes, it's one that I think people can really, really relate to. And then on the flip side, one of the things we'll use to talk about uh, willingness with clients actually was something that a client in the very first ERGT group I ran actually gave me as a way of talking about the experience of willingness. So she was a lifeguard. And so she knew a lot about the ocean and about currents and all of these things. And so she said after week eight, when she had gone out and practiced, that she realized that to her, willingness was a lot like being caught in a riptide. Because if you're caught in a riptide in the ocean, the way that people drown is because they keep trying to swim to the shore. So all of their urges, all of their programming, everything kicks in and it says, I'm starting to drown, I'm losing my breath, I'm getting exhausted, I have to get to shore. And so they keep trying to get to shore. And yet, if you're a lifeguard or just an avid swimmer, what you actually learn is that if you're caught in a riptide, you can't try to head back into shore because you don't have the ability to do that. What you have to do is go against all of your instincts and actually swim away from shore and out past the current so that you can get around it and then head in. And so she said that for her, that's what willingness was, that it kind of went against all of her instincts, which were saying, let me fight, let me avoid. But if you can do that and you can kind of take that leap, it's what will save your life. Wow. Powerful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing those examples. That's really helpful. And at least for me, I hope for, I imagine for our listeners too. That's week seven and eight. That's a lot to cover in those two weeks, but excellent information. What comes next? The next thing we do is actually talk about strategies folks can use to modulate their emotions. So now we've helped them accept their emotions, get more in touch with their emotions, understand their emotions. And now we introduce the fact that there will be times when you need something to take the edge off your emotion or you need to be able to focus on something maybe other than your emotion in order to do the things you need to do during the day. And so we bring up healthy and adaptive emotion modulation strategies, and we focus in particular on distraction and approach strategies as being strategies that are helpful, and then contrast that with avoidance strategies, which probably are the ones that are being used more often, but again, as we've talked about now a lot in the group, are not super helpful. And I will say we've actually had, so we've done a lot of these trainings and trained a lot of clinicians and even a lot of supervisors. And one of the most common questions we get is, why do you save this until week nine? 
So these are simple strategies. They're, you know, a little less complex than the distinction between primary and secondary emotions. They're things people can use to take a step back from the emotion if it's getting really overwhelming. Why on earth don't you teach this in session one or two? And there is a reason for this, because in my experience, if you are somebody who is prone to avoid your emotions, if this is kind of the pattern you've been in for decades, when you hear about distraction as being a helpful technique, even if I can tell you all about what I mean by distraction, how it's not the same as avoidance, how it's really, really different, it feels like and can easily flip into avoidance because there are some apparent similarities between them and I think they're incredibly different, but it's hard to understand that difference if you're in an avoidant mind frame. And so I think the only way to do distraction in a way that's helpful and effective is to do it in the context of emotional acceptance and willingness because that's when distraction can work. And if you do it too early, I don't think people use distraction. I think they think they are, but they're really using avoidance. And so the big distinction we make in this session is that you can think about strategies for modulating emotions as kind of laying on a continuum, where on the one hand, we have avoidance, which we've talked about, and they know is not very helpful in the long term. On the other side of the continuum are approach strategies. So if I experience my emotion, it can pass. It can kind of take its time and then it can leave. And so approaching emotion is one way of modulating. And so that can be really helpful. In the middle is distraction, which is basically defined as taking a step back from that emotion and refocusing our attention on something else in the moment, as long as there is a commitment to returning to that emotion later on. So if you distract forever, not so much distraction as it is avoidance. So distraction is, I'm gonna focus my attention over here, and then when the time is right, I will return to that emotion and give it the time and attention it needs. And so I think that's a big distinction. Another distinction we make between distraction and avoidance is even if you're only going to use it in the moment and you have this idea you'll return to the emotion, if it's self-destructive, it is not distraction. So you can't use self-injury as distraction. If it harms you, that it by virtue of that falls into the avoidance category. Another thing that we also talk with folks about is it might seem like a really simple distinction, but it's really important that if I try to focus my attention away from my emotion, if it's about like, I can't feel this, I have to focus elsewhere, that can be experienced in a very similar way as avoidance and can backfire as opposed to I'm at work. I have this emotion come up. I actually really do not have time to focus on it. So I'm going to focus on my work because that's the thing that needs my attention right now. And that has a really different outcome than if it's about not having this emotion. And so we'll talk about that a lot as well. And then we have clients come up with different distraction strategies, different approach strategies that they think they could use, the context in which those strategies may be most helpful. 
Because there are great ways we can regulate emotions, but some of them don't work at 3 a.m. Or some of them don't work when you're at your job. Some work better when you're by yourself. Some work better when you're around other people. So you want to have this toolbox, so to speak, of different strategies you can use at different times, in different places, in different contexts. And if you plan it out ahead of time, when you're in that context, you don't even have to generate the strategy in that moment. You can think to yourself, oh, wait, I've already done this work. I know that this, this, and this were really, really helpful in this type of context, so I'm going to choose one of these right now. Right. So the, the goal here, or one of the goals, is to increase emotion regulation variability in the sense that there's a wide variety of different strategies that clients can rely on, as well as flexibility. Identifying when those strategies might be most effective, given the context that they're in, whether that's a situation or you know, with regard to a particular emotion or other experience that they're having. And I like how you use the word modulate, where it's not necessarily to get rid of emotions, but to modulate them and maybe decrease their intensity or our urge to behaviorally respond to them. Exactly. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a really helpful session, it sounds like. And I like how you put it in context of why you don't do it earlier. So that's weeks one through nine. And then I guess mm -hmm. there are just four sessions left. Well, so there's, there's session 10, which is focused on impulse control strategies. And so this is kind of just basic behavioral strategies for reducing the likelihood of impulsive behaviors and for essentially kind of riding out urges when they occur. So here we present skills of distraction to kind of wait out an urge with the idea that urges for impulsive behaviors are relatively short-lived. And so we just need to figure out some way to sit through that urge and allow it to pass. Delay. So if you're experiencing that urge, is there something that you can do to maybe delay the time between the urge and actually engage in that behavior? So for example, with regard to self-injury, if there's maybe a particular implement that you use, make sure that that's not immediately accessible to you. Sometimes even just the time between having that urge and seeking out that implement could be enough to where that urge Likely isn't going to go away completely, but it might reduce the intensity enough that individuals feel as though they can persist through it. Even simply just kind of urge surfing using some mindfulness can be a way of just kind of riding out that experience. Consequence modification. I like this one. And Kim this can is talk my about favorite. This. And then pros and cons. But I'll go ahead and let Kim talk a little bit about consequence <laughs> modification here. Yeah. So that is, I think, the most, I guess, novel skill in this particular session, because like Matt said, you know, the first set is this distraction and delay, but we've already talked with them about distraction. And so like, it's something that is going to be very similar. It's a different way of using the distraction skills, but they've had the distraction skills. And so this is just a different way of applying it. Another skill that I'll just mention, and then we don't have to talk much is looking at pros and cons of the behavior. So we actually refer them back to the very first week when we did the negative and positive short and long-term consequences. And this time we say, focus on those negative long-term consequences. Paste those every place where you might have urges to engage in self-injury, because if you see the negative consequences, it'll help resist that and realize that maybe you can choose something that's more helpful to you. Another skill that we use is behavioral substitution, which again 
is something we've kind of been touching upon since week one, which is this idea that if your self-injury serves a particular function, then if you know what that function is, you can do something to get that function met that's less harmful than self-harm. And so you're able to switch in something else. So it doesn't mean you can't get the need met. We think you need to get that need met. These needs are basic human needs. And yet, can we do it in a way that does not involve injuring yourself? So those are like the three that we cover, but we end with the fourth, which is consequence modification. And the basic idea behind this is that as human beings, we are driven by the consequences of our behaviors. And that is how we learn. And so if there is a behavior that has a positive consequence that immediately follows it, that behavior is very much reinforcing. And so it is reinforced and I'm more likely to continue it. If I do something and I have a negative consequence that immediately follows it, it's not terribly reinforcing. I probably won't do it very much. With self-injury, it helps us understand why it is that this behavior can become so, I guess, kind of prevalent in our lives and something that we keep doing again and again and again because it becomes incredibly reinforced. Because the other problem with human beings and learning is that if something immediately follows a behavior, we pair those things in our mind and we learn that they're associated. If what follows a behavior happens a day later, a week later, we're not so great at learning that association. Like we can learn it, but it's not something that kind of immediately is learned. And so with self-injury, yes, we know there are negative consequences, but they're so far removed that that's not what we learn. What we learn is what happens immediately after, which tends to be positive. And so consequence modification uses the way that humans learn, but makes it work in our favor. The idea is if what reinforces self-harm is the positive consequences that immediately follow it, let's remove those positive consequences. Because if they weren't there, it wouldn't be terribly reinforcing. And instead, let's start rewarding ourselves for resisting urges to engage in self-injury. Let's actually give ourselves positive consequences for not acting on the behavior. Because again, in real life, generally speaking, if you don't act on the urge, it's a very positive thing, but the consequence in the moment can be painful. Like you're in touch with that thing, you're not getting the relief. It can feel really aversive. And so with the consequence modification, we want resisting the urge to be paired with something really positive. And we want the positive consequences of self-harm to be removed. And so that's what we help clients uh, do. What are some positive consequences that clients have identified for themselves? I mean, I think one of the examples we'll use a lot in the group when we're talking about this also came from a client. One of the first clients in ERGT used to engage in self-injury in order to comfort herself. Like there was something about the act of the behavior, but then also like how she took care of herself afterwards that provided herself with a lot of comfort. In order to remove those positive consequences, she explicitly did not engage in any of those behaviors that were most comforting to her. 
And so she didn't allow herself to get that comfort from it. So even though she would have a lapse, perhaps, and engage in the behavior, all the things that were most reinforcing were the things that followed. So they were those things that she did to care for herself. So she immediately did not let herself do it. And those positive consequences then were gone. And she did find the behavior far less comforting in the moment, far less beneficial for her. And she started thinking like, why exactly am I doing this? And so that was one way in which the positive consequence was taken away. Another thing that I thought was ingenious is a plan that a client came up with with her therapist um, when she was in the midst of this group. So when she had this session, she went back to her individual therapist and told her about it. So they came up with a plan that if she engaged in self-harm, which for her was pure emotional relief, she was trying to avoid her emotions, just get rid of them entirely. She immediately had to call her therapist voicemail and do a chain analysis on the phone of everything that she had been experiencing that led up to that behavior. And so by the time she got done doing this, she was back in touch with all of those emotions and all of those thoughts she'd been trying to avoid. So that relief was taken away. And yet you'll also notice when I'm talking about these things, this is not about punishing themselves. When folks are in trying to take away these positive consequences, it's not about punishing. It's not about introducing negative consequences. It's just about getting rid of those positives to get back to baseline. And so there's nothing punishing about doing a chain analysis. We actually think that that's a really positive skill. And yet, if you do it, you don't have that relief because you're back in touch with those emotions. That was a great description of that session. Yeah, so the last four sessions then are focused on values clarification and increasing valued action. Really, this is kind of the point in the group where I think a lot of these skills all kind of come together that, you know, if we were to end just with impulse control, I don't think we'd be doing a good service for our clients because we're obviously talking about how to apply these skills in kind of real life throughout the group. But it's these final sessions where we show how these skills can be useful to essentially kind of build the life that our clients want to live. You know, consistent with acceptance and commitment therapy, we provide information on you know, what values are how values differ from goals in the sense that it's this kind of ongoing process as opposed to obtaining some kind of endpoint in the future, which a lot of times can feel overwhelming and daunting. And instead with values, there are things that we can do at this moment to begin that process of building a life that we want to live. So we have a number of exercises here where clients uh, are clarifying what is important to them uniquely. Not what other people think, not what other people have told them is important, but what matters to them? Who do they want to be in this world? And from that point, then we have clients identify specific behaviors that they can engage in that will be consistent with those values. And it doesn't have to be anything you know, large. It can be something that takes just a few moments. It can be something that normally we wouldn't put much regard to. And yet the idea is that the more that we engage in these small behaviors that are consistent with our values, the more that we start to feel as though we are taking agency in our life to build a life that is uniquely ours. After that first session, session 11, we then have clients begin continuously kind of 
with values clarification, identifying specific goals that they can engage in that are kind of in line with those values, as well as also begin to identify potential barriers to valued action. This could be internal barriers such as emotions, particular thoughts, or external barriers, that there could be financial difficulties, transportation, something that you know, we can use problem, you know, we can problem solve around. With regard to internal barriers, we rely back on the skills that we've discussed up to this point of emotional willingness, acceptance-based emotion modulation strategies, and so on. And then the last piece is commitment. Essentially, how can we kind of maintain this emphasis or focus on valued action kind of moving forward? And again, looking at commitment is an ongoing process. It's not something where if we commit to something and then you know, we miss an opportunity to do it, it doesn't mean all is lost. It means that we can then just kind of recommit. Or maybe that there is an opportunity to do the behavior that we specifically were planning on doing. Well, we can commit to another behavior that's in line with that value. So in this way, we're committing to an intention to act as opposed to a particular outcome. And again, it kind of increases the self-efficacy and, and sense of mastery that at any given moment, there are choices that we can make to build this life that matters to us. And to me, this really was kind of a transformative aspect of the group because it's really where you started to see some real change occurring in the lives of our clients to where they saw, okay, so all the stuff that we've been doing up to this point, talking about emotions, talking about different ways of you know, modulating emotions, approaching our emotions, this is what it's in service of. Noticing that the more that you, you know, are able to build this life that matters to you, maybe there's less reliance for self-injury because maybe there is you know, less likelihood of maybe some of these negative emotions coming up in those kind of situations or you know, where clients felt like maybe a sense of helplessness or hopelessness because they weren't living the life that felt like their own. They were living someone else's life. And here, this was a way of kind of increasing that self-efficacy that they can be in control of building that life that they want to live moving forward. Well, I think the other key piece of this, which Matt touched upon, is because the focus is on values and valued actions rather than goals, it really helps folks connect with the things they can do in any given moment, starting from where they're at right now. And I think it also really combats the perfectionism that we see in a lot of our clients. And so I think with a lot of folks who engage in self-injury, there can be a tendency toward perfectionism, not amongst everyone, but certainly among a subset. And so there's this idea that if you have goals, you know, they have to be these lofty goals. And if I haven't met them, then I'm failing and I'm not successful. And what happens if I'm heading toward this goal? And then like that changes for me or my, my values do change and I don't want to go toward this goal. Oh my God. Well, then I'm failing. I'm letting everyone down. And there can be all of these experiences. And with valued actions, it's this direction that I'm going to head in my life because it's meaningful to me. It's the things that matter to me. And yet when it comes to putting that into action, they are these small doable things that like Matt said, I can do in any given moment. I can do them in a thousand different ways. If I value being a supportive partner, there are 80 billion things I can do consistent with that value. And even if I don't want to do some of them, I well, one, I still could because values you don't have to feel like doing in order to do them. 
but also I could do all these other different things. And any of them are consistent with still moving me in that direction. And so all of a sudden, sky's the limit. If I don't do it in one moment, I can do it in the next. I can do these other things. And so there's so much flexibility and it becomes a way of kind of thinking about the choices we're making as we go about our lives. And as long as we're moving forward in and value direction, like in one of them, I am still moving forward in a way that's going to build a more meaningful life for me. And I think there is something about that that is transformative and gives people kind of power and control that sometimes is lost if the focus is on like this really lofty goal that's like five years out that maybe I no longer even want, but I'm still stuck that I have to be doing it. I love that clarification between values and goals. And I remember from your presentation that for grammar nerds, values are often the things that are in the present progressive, the ING, like things that we can do right now. I think about students that I work with, goals are great, graduate high school, that's great, but there are many ways to do that. You could just cheat your way through, but is that according to your values? Or you could just ace every test by studying for the test and not learn anything, but oftentimes learning is the value, at least, I mean, that's an example I use for my own life because I, I very much value learning and I can learn right now, today. Right eventually graduate with you know high school, college, grad school, whichever it might be. So yeah, I, I like this part of ERGT a lot. We went through in grave detail. Thank you for being willing to do that. I think this is incredibly helpful for anyone listening. And you've also done some studies you referenced earlier, examining the effectiveness of ERGT in decreasing self-injury frequency in urges. I think at the end of the day, how good is ERGT at helping people stopping self-injuring? Yeah, so at this point, th so there's been seven total trials on ERGT or the adaptation for the treatment for adolescents. So tr seven trials total. When it comes to just ERGT, which was developed for adults, there have been four trials. And what we see consistently is that there are significant improvements in self-injury, emotion regulation, and also psychiatric symptoms. So oftentimes borderline personality symptoms go down, depression symptoms, anxiety symptoms. And we also see improvements in quality of life, which I think is getting at those last few sessions and how it culminates in helping people think about ways to live their life and build a life worth living. So we see all of this happening in the data, and this is across all of the trials that we're seeing improvements, self-injury, emotion regulation, other risky behaviors, which often include things like substance use, eating disordered behaviors, those types of things, and then psychiatric symptoms in general. So when it comes to self-injury, I can say that the most rigorous trial we did, so Matt and I, in the States, looked at improvements um, in self-injury across the course of ERGT relative to a control group, and then also what happened for a nine-month follow-up window. In about half of the participants who participated in ERGT, they did have abstinence from self-injury. So about 50%, I think it was around like 47%, had no self-injury at all the last half of the group, and then had no self-injury in the nine-month follow-up period. So that's about a year when the self-injury had stopped. If you look at people who 
just had a reduction in their self-injury of greater than half. So whatever they'd been doing in, before the group, by the end, they had reduced it by more than half. That was over 60% of our participants. And so there are, I think, quite a few folks who really do recover pretty fully from self-harm, at least in the year following treatment. And you see these gains sustained. For other folks, you see reductions, and yet clearly they still probably need some further treatment or to continue practicing the skills to fully recover from self-injury. But I think in general, these are pretty nice findings. And they're showing us that, you know, people really are improving in their self-harm as a result of this group. And as I mentioned, we now have multiple trials that have shown that the reason we see these improvements in self-harm, the reason that we see these reductions is because of the improvements in emotion regulation. That what is happening is that there is an improvement in emotion regulation, and that is then predicting the improvements in self-injury. And so I think it shows that the mechanism is what we had thought it might be. And this is the reason we're seeing this, that it's not about just having the experience of being with other folks who have a similar experience or being in this group environment and having that support, which I do think is important. Yet that's not what's leading to these improvements in self-harm. It's the skills we're teaching folks that lead to them. I would also throw out there that one of the important things about the research that's been done is that it hasn't just been done by Matt and I in our lab. And so when you're thinking about, you know, how to assess if treatments are helpful, one criticism that is sometimes levied against researchers is that there can be treatments that have been examined and that have all these great results but they've only been done by the folks who developed the treatment. I think those results still matter and they're still meaningful. And yet clearly there are ways in which me doing this treatment might be different than somebody else doing this treatment. I have a certain level of expertise when it comes to ERGT. And so it doesn't necessarily tell us how that would apply outside of our lab. And that's, of course, what we care about the most. Like, can these results actually occur if it's not Matt and I leading the groups or supervising almost on a daily basis the folks who are leading these groups? But half of these trials have actually been done in Sweden by our colleagues. And so we worked with them. We, you know, supervised them in how to supervise this. And we provided week-long trainings to the clinicians, but that was the extent of our involvement. And it was these clinicians who led the groups and got very similar results to what ours were. And so it shows that it can be done outside of just our lab, which I think is really promising. That is incredibly exciting. And I know we have listeners in Sweden, probably some of those researchers, but also people with lived experience and some parents, I imagine uh, about half our listeners are outside the US. So I'm happy that we're actually talking about this topic as well. Now, you've mentioned ERGT having been researched only among adults. Then you referenced the adolescent version. Can ERGT, do you think specifically still be used with and be helpful for children and adolescents? Or would you not recommend that? I think what I would say is, so in terms of the research, ERGT has only been examined in adults, and yet that included a bunch of 18-year-olds. 
so in our adult samples, we did have older adolescents, if you consider 18 to be older adolescents, which is pretty reasonable to think about. Yeah. So I think we've done it with 18-year-olds. I would also say based on what we know about the development of emotion regulation, what we know about just kind of childhood development in general, thinking about using ERGT as it was originally designed with like 15, 16, 17-year-olds seems perfectly reasonable to me because the skills are such that you have those capabilities at that age. We're talking about it in ways that would be very developmentally appropriate. So I think there are ways in which it could work really well with, you know, middle to older adolescents. Children, I would say, as in under 13, I'm guessing probably would need a pretty significant adaptation of this group because the way we talk about it, children would just not be at that kind of developmental level. And I am explicitly not in any way a child researcher or a child clinician. And so I'm not sure the adaptations that would be needed other than to say I would think like a 10-year-old probably could not get the material as it's written now. I do think it's really helpful to teach kids emotion regulation. And I think there are ways to do it that would be helpful, but not necessarily as designed. And I can also say that with the adolescent adaptation, which at this point has only been examined in Sweden, so the version is Swedish, it was very much kind of taking ERGT and then just kind of simplifying certain things, streamlining certain things. It's a couple sessions briefer than ERGT. And yet the trials with that have been incredibly promising. And actually there is a randomized controlled trial that just completed with Arita that is under review right now. And again, found very similar results to what we found with ERGT in adults found further evidence that emotion regulation is driving these improvements in self-injury. And so I think it's incredibly promising as well. And with the ARETA, which is this individual treatment for adolescents, that version of ERGT, they also did include a parent module. So parents got a little bit of supplementary information to kind of augment what their children were getting and just teach them some of the skills and kind of help them mostly to kind of assist their child in what they were learning. And that research is being done by Johan Bierberg at uh, the Karolinska Institute. So keep a lookout for hopefully that publication soon. <laughs> I certainly will. And I'm glad that you referenced its ARETA, which stands for Emotion Regulation Individual Therapy for Adolescents. And yeah, some exciting studies coming out there. Thank you. So how can clinicians become familiar or proficient in implementing ERGT? Do they need special training or can those with DBT and ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy training implement ERGT in their own practice? What do you suggest? So, I mean, I think ideally... If you want to really learn the nuts and bolts of this treatment, if you want to become as proficient in it as possible, I do think a workshop is kind of the ideal way of going about it. We have workshops that range from three hours to a full week in length. And so, you know, there are a variety of options depending on if somebody's needs um, and interests. 
But I think we have found that the workshops themselves are really, really helpful in making sure that people understand the intricacies of the treatment, understand the way in which to kind of sell the skills and how to approach them from an ERGT consistent theoretical perspective, you know, again, with this idea of approach versus avoidance and really trying to model that to clients and really emphasizing acceptance and willingness throughout. And I think the workshops can be helpful because there's a context that can be provided. That said, if folks are trained in DBT, have experience with ACT, and have experience with this population and already maybe themselves identify as having an acceptance-based behavioral approach and kind of taking that stance already, then I think just getting the manual for the treatment and then being able to read it, it seems very reasonable that somebody could then deliver the treatment in an effective way. And so I think, you know, workshops can be super helpful. And yet, if you have that experience in DBT and ACT and already take that stance, I think that the manual may be a useful way of kind of training yourself. And I think part of it also, too, really depends on, like, are you an individual clinician who's going to work with a couple of clients and has enough training where you think you can use the manual and it'll be helpful? Or are you somebody who's trying to kind of create an entire program that's going to help hundreds of clients that eventually may have multiple clinicians, maybe you want to, you know, do the workshops to actually get kind of more intensive training. And where might they obtain that manual? Uh, They can email me. (laughs) (laughs) If you'd like, I can put your email in the episode notes. Yeah, that would be fine. And then it looks like we might eventually actually have a published manual for this that people can obtain. But for right now, The only way to get it is to contact me. (laughs) Before we finish with our last questions, how can people with lived experience of self-injury find someone proficient in administering ERGT? That's a really good question. So the good news is if you live in Sweden, you can easily find somebody because through the National Self-Harm Project, which got us over there to train multiple clinicians in multiple clinics, as well as multiple supervisors. My understanding is that ERGT is available throughout the country in the vast majority of community clinics. So I think that if you are in Sweden or maybe Copenhagen and therefore really, really close to Sweden, it would be quite easy to obtain ERGT proficient clinician because they are doing it in most of the clinics in the country and it is widely available and folks have been trained, they've been supervised. I think they have a really nice system operating. If you do not live in Sweden and you live, for instance, in the United States, it's not going to be easy to like go to one place to figure out who may be proficient or trained because we don't have a database on that. We've done some trainings in the US, but honestly, like I don't know offhand like who participated in those or who has necessarily been trained. We haven't tracked that. So I would say that in the US, if you are somebody with lived experience, the best option is to search for somebody with expertise in treating self-injury, with a DBT background or a DBT and ACT background, and then ask them. 
because I think a lot of those folks might be familiar with ERGT, could have received the training, might have received the manual, and would know about it, and could also know if they maybe know enough that they'd be able to become proficient from using the manual. And the only way to know is to ask. But I think starting with folks with expertise in the treatment of self-injury and DBT is a helpful way to start because those are the folks most likely to be able to do this treatment anyhow. Right. And I would advise people to go to some of the professional organizations where you're more likely to find individuals who have that training background. So, for example, there are provider databases at the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, abct.org or the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, who may be more likely to put you in contact with someone who has that background and training and act in DBT that's going to lend itself well for doing ERGT. Thank you. That was uh, an important question for me. I wanted to ask that as well. To wrap things up, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to parents of children, adolescents who self-injure? Yeah, I mean, I think for parents... What I would say is it is really, really tough to see somebody who you love, to see your child who you love engaging in self-injury. Like that's an incredibly painful experience. And the thing I always recommend to parents is to do your best to strike a balance between taking the behavior seriously. Because if somebody is doing this, it generally means that they're in a lot of distress that they are probably pretty overwhelmed by their emotions and that they do need help, and then also not overreacting. And again, this is based on the fact that like seeing somebody you love harm themselves, that's, that's challenging and that's really, really hard to deal with. And I think because self-injury, and I'm sure you've probably talked about this on other podcasts you've had, but since self-injury can resemble a suicide attempt, It can be really terrifying for parents if they see like, oh no, my child has cut themselves. It can be easy to jump to the idea that they're trying to kill themselves. They're trying to end their life. And in fact, we know self-injury can really be the opposite of that. Like folks are using this to cope. They're using this to actually avoid attempting suicide sometimes. And so being able to both take it seriously and not go too much into thinking it's like an utter catastrophe and they're really, really close to dying could be a really helpful way. And then also realizing like there really is help available. So like I've said, you know, these treatments range from let's say 10 weeks to 14 weeks. They're really effective and they can help folks reduce their self-injury or even stop it entirely. And that's not really that long of a treatment to see those results. And so the help is there and it doesn't have to take five years. And like, this is something that is available. So, you know, understanding that that is out there. And if you can assist your child in getting connected to the care that they need, this is a behavior that absolutely somebody can recover from. Yeah, I would just say that the second to what Kim said is that obviously the behavior is frightening for many people who maybe don't have an understanding as to how self-injury develops or the function that it serves. And I would say that it's important to remember that there is emotional pain that's underlying that that behavior is serving a function. And so as much as there might be uh, an inclination to, to do something to stop that behavior immediately, it might be more effective to validate that emotional pain 
that's giving rise to that behavior and help your child to find more effective ways of coping with that pain. And approaching it, of course, without judgment is going to be incredibly important as well. And based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to other professionals, whether other researchers or clinicians? So I think, you know, if you're a clinician who's treating folks with self-injury, the biggest thing, again, is figure out its function and figure out a way to get that function met that does not require self-injury. And our research repeatedly, and that of so many other researchers, has suggested emotion regulation is a key function. And so it may not be the kind of most relevant function for every single client who engages in self-injury, but it's pretty darn common. And I think for a lot of folks, it really is the driving force. So the more that you can help clients learn to modulate their emotions in other ways, to approach their emotions in more adaptive ways, to not be fighting their emotions in the way that perhaps they are now, the more likely it is that they will be able to stop self-injuring. And so I think that's really the key, like functional analysis, understand the function, help them get those needs met in other ways, and more often than not, help them improve emotion regulation, and you really should see the need for self-injury decrease. Yeah, and I think just to add a, in, in doing any kind of clinical work, it's important to identify these factors that underlie a wide variety of behaviors that our clients present with. And so one thing that we discussed when we were talking about the results of our, our study is that it's not as though just self-injury reduced over the course of treatment. We also saw a reduction in other self-destructive behaviors as well, which kind of speaks to this idea that emotion regulation is this transdiagnostic factor. And we're going to be able to develop more efficient and effective treatments if we can do some work in identifying what are these shared processes that are underlying behaviors that on the surface look very different. So we don't need a treatment for you know, five different behaviors. Maybe if we just focus on that one factor that's driving all these behaviors, we can have people experience you know, benefits and recovery in a much quicker and effective way. That's great. And finally, what would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury? So thinking about the clients we've worked with and the types of beliefs and self-judgments that I've heard from them, I'll start with that. So you are not alone. <laughs> you are not crazy. You are not defective in some way because you're doing this. Like this behavior makes a lot of sense in the moment and it is helping you meet very basic human needs that all of us need to meet. That said, I do believe that self-injury in the long run is not the most helpful or sustaining way of getting these needs met. And so kind of similar to the message to parents, you know, if you have this lived experience, there is help available. You don't have to sign up for treatment for 10 years in order to get help with your self-injury. And as much as some of the stuff we talked about today might be a little scary, like it can be quite scary actually to think about approaching your emotions or experiencing emotions that feel really overwhelming. I truly, truly believe that you will have far less emotional suffering from experiencing them and practicing emotional willingness than from fighting them and trying to avoid them. Because ultimately, I don't think that works. 
the experience of all the clients that I've had says it doesn't work. And generally, it really does end up having these paradoxical effects that makes emotional suffering far worse. And so as much as it can be scary, kind of taking that breath and taking that leap of faith into trying this alternative approach might be a really helpful way of going and might actually ultimately give the relief that you've been searching for in a way that is more sustainable and less ultimately self-harmful. Anything to add, Dr. Till? No, I think Kim said it best. Wow. Thank you both for taking actually much more time than I had requested of you and had anticipated. This is going to be far reaching. I've always been really excited about ERGT since having read about it and having attended one of your workshops. So for me, this is an incredibly important topic. And thank you for diving into the nuts and bolts. I mean, of course, you could talk about this for an entire week, like in one of your trainings, but to give people an overview of it, both clinicians and people with lived experience of self-injury, I think is incredibly hopeful. I know a lot of mental health professionals that are clinicians listen to the podcast, and I'm hoping that maybe they can take some of this information and bring it back and help some people that might be self-injuring and help them in a new way. This is incredible. Uh, Again, thank you for your time. Thank you. It was actually a lot of fun. I always enjoy talking about this stuff, so it's a really nice way to end the week, actually. Yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. If you have found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and please help others find us by giving us a five-star rating, writing a positive review, and or telling your friends and colleagues. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741741. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Doc Westers. For all things self-injury, follow IPSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.